Africa State of Mind with Lee Kasumba. Get it on iTunes now. How many times have you visited a country or a place and thought, wow, I could live here? But shortly after your holiday was done, you quickly packed up your bags and went back to life as usual. This wasn't the case with my next guest on Africa State of Mind. About 25 years ago, she visited Marrakesh, Morocco, and she said, if reincarnation exists, I can live here. She quickly packed up her life and moved to Morocco. She is most famous recently for the beautiful property owned by her and her husband, Jean Tansmna. Jean meaning big garden in Arabic and Tamsna means village where it's found. But it's actually her second hospitality property in Morocco. The first was Dar Tamsna that actually won the 2002 Harper's and Queen Award for the best private villa. She's been featured in over 57 publications worldwide, including the Wall Street Journal, British, Italian and German Vogue, New York Times, El Decor, to mention a few. She's also a lover of the arts and owns a con- cultural concept store called Riyadh Tamsna and sits on the board of the Marrakesh Bienal and the Observateur de la Palmeraie, the conservation arm of the foundation Mohammed VI pour la protection de l'environnement. What makes her story even more extraordinary is the fact that she's a former lawyer and an extremely successful one at that, that changed careers to follow her passion. She's also not from Morocco. She's of Senegalese and West Indies descent and lived in France for the most of her life. She now owns beautiful properties in Morocco and is the only black woman who does. And the fact that she's a woman is a pretty big deal because there aren't that many women involved in architecture and construction in Morocco. She is definitely changing the narrative. I'm so excited. You can hear it in my voice to be having a conversation with the phenomenal um, Marianne Luan-Martin. Marianne, welcome to Africa State of Mind. Yay! Well, I am so honored about this presentation. Yeah, Yeah, well, I'm speechless. You know, you go on with your life and suddenly you hear something say this about you on the radio. It's wonderful. And I'm sure, like, I mean, do you, like, if you flash back to the the little girl that you were, did you ever imagine that your resume would be all that it is today? Well, since I was a little girl, I wanted to be an architect. Okay. So um, that was, you know, I'm very lucky because I knew exactly what I wanted since Mm -hmm. I was tiny. Mm -hmm. And uh, I finished high school two years in advance, and then I went straight to École Nationale des Beaux-Arts Architecture in Paris, Mm -hmm. and um, everything was going extremely well, except that to go into the third year, you need some minor credits in math and physics, where I'm just totally, totally hopeless. (laughs) So because of that, I had to stop. And then I went to law school and became a lawyer. I'm only the fourth generation lawyer in my family. Mm. But in my heart, I always knew what I want to do is build and design. Mm. And um, I went to, um, and probably the fact that I'm a mix of West Indies, Senegal, that I had traveled a lot in my childhood, Mm. I was always very, very attracted by the cultural expression of architecture. Yes. So the, the connection between the cultural heritage and architecture was something which has always fascinated me, which was a strange interest for a little girl and then a teenager when all my friends had subscriptions to rock magazines, <laughs> teenager magazines. I had all the possible architecture magazines wow. when I was 12 and 13. And then, um, and then I traveled to India 
mm-hmm. um, alone uh, in '84, and then I realized that the um, so many Indian families had turned um, their uh, family homes into small boutique hotels. It was before the term even existed, boutique mm-hmm. hotel. And I just fell in love with the concept. I was traveling, you know, sometimes in backpackers' hotels and hostels, and sometimes being able to afford one of these places, which were not very expensive. And then it just became, of course, this is how you want to travel. Mm. Living the real life and not being in a kind of, you know, anonymous, standardized place. And um, this was in 84, and I went back to my law career. Everything was fine and then I was just dreaming oh how fabulous it would be if this kind of um, hospitality was existing everywhere yeah. and I came to Morocco on mm-hmm. holidays uh, to in fact look for land uh, because I had convinced my uh, parents um, that Marrakesh was the place where they should build a holiday house and oh wow that's quite sneaky <laughs> Yeah, well, in fact, they were they were thinking about having a holiday house, which would not be as far as their countries of origin, mm-hmm. which were Senegal and West Indies. Yes. And I told them, well, you know, Morocco is only three hours flight away. And since you have people with such fabulous taste at Saint Laurent going there all the time, it must really be fantastic. And mm-hmm. the best place is obviously Marrakech. So they said, okay, that's a good idea. Go and look for land. And the deal was that I would be in charge from A to Z because they knew how frustrated I was not to have become an architect. Mm. And I came to look for land, fell in love with the play. They came back with me. They loved the land I had found. And uh, I designed a house for them and then turned it into a business, convincing them how often will you be on holidays anyhow. So it better yield some income. Mm. And this was the start of Dark Times Not. And um, to my just astonishment, in the last 80s and early 90s, the house was published all over the heart, all mm-hmm. over the world. And this is how it just changed. And I realized that there was a life beyond being a stressed lawyer in Paris. And little by little, I got more and more involved in Morocco, did more and more things. And um, I met my husband, and fortunately, he also fell in love with Morocco. <laughs> and because it, Morocco was already a big part of my life. Yes, yes. And then we moved permanently here in 96 oh, with wow. the kids. And uh, then as I was developing my, my parents' investments in Morocco, uh, we started looking to do our own thing. And we found a piece of land in 2000, and in 2001, we built Jnan Tamsna. Mm. You pronounce it Jnan. Jnan Tamsna, And in fact, it was, um, we built the hotel in 11 months and three weeks, which is probably a continental record, because the other properties were doing so well that with the overflow, mm-hmm. um, I had accepted a, a big booking uh, on New Year's Eve 2001 before having started to build the hotel. And we cruised and cruised and wow. we, were ready. we were ready and hanging the last paintings on the morning of December 27th. And the guests were arriving at noon for lunch. Wow. So we, we started digging on January 6, 2001 
and the first guest arrived on the 27th of December of the same year. Wow, that's such an amazing story. I feel like I wish I was sitting with you um, at, at your property, like having like nice coffee. I'm literally jealous. <laughs> I'm literally well, jealous. I hope you will be coming to visit. <laughs> no, definitely. I've always had a. I think that most people, you know, whenever we think of Morocco, Marrakesh, it's one of those places that everybody's like, I need to go, you know, um, and, you know, it just. You know what I mean? It's one of those places that everybody feels like they really want to go. And now I feel like I have even more of a reason because even as I was looking at the properties that you have and also the fact that you are a huge lover of art and you sell quite a bit of art. Can you talk to us about just, you know, with regards to some of the art that you're involved in and the art that you sell? Well, um, I, I, stopped, um, I stopped the Riyadh Tamstein a few years ago because I really had to focus on my hotel. Mm. So I had uh, I was I opened a concept store which was Riyadh Tamsna in 1999, yes. and it went extremely well for six years. And then I, I couldn't do everything, but I'm reopening an art space um, in October, and I hope to do a big party then. Mm. So my new space is going to be at, at the um, I have a space of about 2,000 square feet, just like a big loft in the gardens of the hotel. Mm. And the idea is to create like um, a shoppable loft, I would say, mm-hmm. like I had before, which was um, each room has a function and we would have a sitting area and a dining area, which will be like a tapas bar and all the furniture I design and is for sale. Mm-hmm. And then you enter into a, a, like a bedroom and all of the um, uh, design is the sale and the art on the wall. Oh, wow. and then there's an area where I want to have only African designers, um, sh- uh, jewelry, clothes, fashion accessories. Everything is going to be available. But it's like if you enter into someone's dressing room mm. and thing is on hanger and you can buy everything. You That's know? lovely. Um, and then... Yes. No, Marianne, sorry, sorry to interject there. I did want to ask because you mentioned about selling um, African designs and everything, you know. I think that for the greater continent, there's always this um, almost, um, it feels like there's a separation between Morocco and the greater Africa, you know. And you're obviously somebody who's proof that they can be, you know, that there are collaborative spaces between Morocco and obviously, you know, you being um, of Senegalese and West Indy um, descent. Um, can you talk to us just about how you feel that, like, what the common threads you feel they are within the culture of people in Morocco and then perhaps the culture of people in Senegal, um, you know, just, you know, from your perspective? Well, you see, in fact, I'm, Marrakesh is a very, very cosmopolitan town. Mm-hmm. And I noticed when I had my store before that people from all over the world were coming to Marrakesh. Mm-hmm. And when I had my store, the only, I didn't, the only uh, African designer I knew was a textile maker called Aisa Dion from Senegal, who does amazing textiles. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, my store had the front cover of a magazine called Departures, mm-hmm. and it was with a pair of shoes I had designed. And uh, it was written, The Essence of Chic in Marrakesh. Mm. And um, I realized a long time ago that Morocco was, in fact, a fantastic platform to show to the rest of the world what Africa was producing. Mm. And the, the people who are coming to my hotel are 
foreigners because you know local people they have their own house so they don't go to yeah. hotels so um i have people from you know australia a lot of americans a lot of english some french people and other european citizenships and it would be the ideal uh, bridge would be to use this space to make the world discover the creativity and genius of what is um, what African designers mm -hmm. are doing today. Mm -hmm. Because like 20 years ago, I only knew like one or two, but now there's so, there's so many. many. Mm -hmm. Kenya, from South Africa, from Nigeria, mm. from Ghana, from all over the place. And these are the people I would like to carry here. Mm. Because, you know, uh, I have the feeling that um, luxury is just booming now in, in Africa. Yes, yes. And it is carried by the genius of, and the creativity and the talent of young African designers. And the thing is that, um, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I have the sense that there's still a lack of exposure. Because you see, the European market could could you could buy that, but people don't go to shop in Africa for clothes. They don't go to mm. shop in Nairobi or, or Lagos or Accra. Mm. Um, they go to Paris, Rome, or Milan or London, you know. Mm. And it's just because they don't know. But when I see the the jewelry of Adèle de Jacques, when I see the fabrics or clothes of others, I think but this could be worn by my German or Swiss or French friends, but mm. they don't know about it. Mm. So what I would like, since everybody come to Marrakesh, which remains three hours flight or two hours and a half flight for many uh, European uh, cities and a lot of um, people from New York or LA come here, I would like this place to become like a showcase of the talents in Africa today. Sure. I love that, you know, you, you said something else. So I love the way, firstly, the way that you just explain things. It's like you speak in art. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> everything inside of me is like, wow. But, you know, you know, you said something that is very important when you said that people don't go and shop in like Nigeria and Ghana and, and, and everything else. They go to London, Paris and all the rest. And, and I think that what you're saying is so, so important and, val and, and valid because there's so much um, art and creativity and design and, and everything within, you know, around the continent. But more often than not, when, you know, from my travels, when I go to different countries, it's in order to be able to get something that is traditionally from that country you almost have to you know there's the whole experience about going into the market on the other side the other side you know and and so all of those things that i feel like we haven't developed this whole um idea of making africa a shopping mecca almost which is what yeah. it which is what it can be because all of our designs and you know we see a lot of artists and everything around the world really celebrating and wearing a few african designers here and there and i think that yeah. what you're saying that you could do is so amazing just with regards to making that a, 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 almost like a mecca for buying uh, you know african um art and and design it, well you know it is just about um, being there, mm. being shown, being exposed, mm. you know, because there there are a lot of people who may not be interested in going to do a safari in East or South Africa mm. or going to a visit Senegal. Mm. But if they know a place where they can mm. buy things, it's not like uh, traveling, you know, the, the, the products have to be in front of their eyes. Yes. And since, you know, some people come from to Marrakesh like three, four times a year because it, many of my guests tell me, look, it takes us, because of traffic jam, more time to go to our country house in our country 
than to fly to Marrakech. Wow. So a lot of people, you know, they have bad weather in Europe and a lot of people just need a break with some sun and they just hop on a easy jet plane um, and come to Marrakech for a few days. Mm. So what do they do? Of course they shop. And if they were discovering new things, it would be wonderful. Mm. And I'm, I'm looking for, and I hope I have found some very good partners to start an e-commerce thing, mm. which would be um, focused on what we sell in the shop. Because um, I think that um, the, the, an e-commerce platform which would show all of these African designers would be absolutely wonderful. Sure. So after when people go, they can still buy things. Mm. I love that. That's so amazing. Um, I just think it's a it's a phenomenal idea. I don't know why anybody hasn't thought of it, but it's you're as you've described, you're very you know well positioned, you know in a, in a well positioned location and place in your career where you can actually do this. So it's going to be great for Africa as a whole. Um, I did also want to talk a little bit about uh, you did a talk at the Positive Economic Forum where there was a tribute to Leila Aloui, who was a photographer yes. that was killed in a terrorist attack in Burkina Faso. Um, um, yes. From her life, what do you feel that we can all learn, you know, about from her life? And also, uh, you know, what do you think about just in general, the, the state of affairs within the continent as a whole, where it comes to journalists and photographers and, and all the rest? Well, uh, Leila was a dear friend mm. and her parents are dear friends. Mm. And she um, was struck as a child that because of her French, she has a dual citizenship, uh, French and Moroccan, she could travel as much as she wanted. And she was seeing the migrants dreaming to cross the sea. Mm. And this probably had a big influence in, in her career. And she documented people who had no voices. And um, my son, uh, Edward, I only have a son and I have a daughter too, um, is dedicating his uh, career now, he's 27, he has started a project called Global Migrants. And because Morocco is a corridor to um, its last country on the continent, mm. Europe, and we still have so many migrants hoping, uh, thinking that it's paradise on the other side of the sea when it is hell, when you have no papers, uh, they're still trying to cross and many of them drown, as we all know, mm. and some are sent to countries where they ha we have seen recently that they can even be been sold in the most uh, horrible ways. So um, my son's project is about giving them legal and medical assistance and information and trying to uh, create opportunities for them here and also creating cultural spaces where they can have, go back to a, a life full of dignity and interact with the local people. Mm. And there's a new museum here, a wonderful museum called Macau, which is a museum of um, art for contemporary African art. And um, last Friday, with a wonderful curator of the museum and my son, they organized a, a lunch, and a group of migrants had a full tour of the museum with all the explanation, and uh, they all had lunch then uh, there. And what was absolutely amazing is that since it's an African uh, art museum, the migrants who have been coming, you know, on foot and crossing the Sahara and crossing forests, they were suddenly in an amazingly beautiful space mm. and looking at art produced by people of their country, whom they had never heard of, of course. And it was a very moving moment, you know, because 
then you know the whole thing is to give back to people first dignity pride and understand that they have a cultural heritage that they have to cling on and it was it was an incredible moment you know so um to come back to um leila um i was very honored that uh Positive Economy Forum uh, asked me to to speak. It's a big, big forum in France, organized mm -hmm. by the former uh, advisor of President François Mitterrand. And um, uh, the idea was to pay tribute to her fabulous, fabulous, fabulous uh, work. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people in the audience, what was interesting, they told me, you know, it's a lot of students go there and a lot of people from all over the world. But it's because everyone now has their phone. You never know if they're listening or if they're taking notes. Mm. They're all on their phones all the time. And um, friends I had in the audience said, as soon as I stepped on the stage and started talking about Leila, everybody po uh, just left their phone and they were just listening to me. And I thought that this was an incredible tribute to her So she died in, um, she was sent by Amnesty International in Burkina Faso mm -hmm. to um, document a uh, woman. Uh, and um, she just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, trying to get takeout after, from a cafe mm -hmm. after a very long day of work. And when she was stepping in to, to take takeout, she was not even sitting there with friends at the restaurant. This is where the, the criminals came in and mm. shot at everyone and it took her four days to, to leave this planet. Sure. I'm really sorry about your loss. I can hear in the tone of your voice how close you really were to her. And I think it's also, um, I think it's so powerful that your, that your son is, you know, working on the project that he's working on because we definitely need to, you know, almost change, tell a different story about Africa, not only to the rest of the world but the fact that you know you you had migrants coming in you know and seeing art of people from where it is that they come from you know it just yeah, gives a yeah. sense of pride because as africans we all like you say we all think that it's better on the other side but we have so much to offer the rest of the yeah. world and and it's also sometimes just a lack of exposure um you know even within the countries that we live in like a lot of us don't actually know what is happening around the the country or the or in the continent the greater continent as a whole so those are Exactly. Yeah, it is quite exactly. And I think that the new generation, like you see, my son uh, is 27, and but he, since he was 18, he was uh, he went to McGill University in Canada, and I discovered that he was volunteering with homeless and mm -hmm. refugees, and it, it has always been his call. Mm -hmm. And I think that the new generation, um, and I hope that there are more and more like him, they want to repossess the future of Africa. They say, you know, he would tell you, well, you know, all the NGOs were started by foreigners, all of the aid, and you hear Africa is poor, da, da, da. it's also always something uh, led by foreigners. But it's about time for ourselves to, you know, are, have gone to good schools and are in full uh, possession of what we want to do with our own life. It is about time for us to create these NGOs and to help people and to um, have an impact on our own continent, mm. you know, at all levels. Because on one hand, you see an incredible amount of brilliant black entrepreneurs, 
um, but it would be really good that we have philanthropists also and more and more mm. and that people understand that if they don't want to just do this because they need to make a, a living you can always find time on the side to help you know mm. or to support or to um, you know be to contribute to something bigger than just your own life Sure. You know, if you ever want a career change and if this was ever possible, you should definitely run for like the president of Africa or the <laughs> minister of, of arts and culture and <laughs> for the whole of Africa yeah. because no. a lot of I want I want my freedom. So and the freedom comes from being in the in the private um, sector, sector, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Now, I also did want to touch on to one other um, kind of serious uh, topic, you know. Um, you know, obviously, you know, from what, what has been reported and everything, you're the only um, black woman that owns uh, a hotel property in in Morocco. I don't know if it's just in Marrakesh or if it's in Greater Morocco as well, you know. And, the, you know, and just the challenge about being somebody from another country and coming in and opening Opening, uh, you know, opening up a, a very successful, having successful hospitality properties. You, you know what I mean? Especially in a time in the world where we hear all these sentiments around nationalism and me, my, and my own. You know, your life is quite integrated. There's Senegal, there is um, West Indies, there's now Morocco, there's Paris. You know, um, so your life is quite integrated. What would you say um, has made your life experience so rich that it makes sense for us to be travelers as human beings and to learn and de- and develop in different parts of the world? What would your message be where that's concerned? Well, you know, I, you know, France, France is, I mean, it's my country. I never lived in Senegal. I never lived in West Indies. I mm. just went there on holidays a few times, but I would like both of them to be m- much more part of my life now. Mm. I think that it's just a, um, a sense of, uh, so what? You know, mm-hmm. I never just like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I was, um, when I was a lawyer and everything, I had, I had won a very prestigious contest in Paris and I was, um, representing Paris Bar in international contest. And, you know, I was, my career was planned to be quite interesting. I mean, yes. And then I dropped everything to start doing things in Morocco. People would tell me, but you are crazy. Mm-hmm. Why are you leaving this? To go, first of all, in a country which is not yours, you're a black woman, you don't speak Arabic, and the construction trade is the most macho in the world. They ignore women there, you know. Mm -hmm. And I would just say to people, well, so what? You know? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to try. What's the problem? You know, it's, I think, I think that it's, without being naive or unrealistic, Mm -hmm. the most important thing is to never doubt that things are possible. And to always keep on and never give up. And it was not easy. The first, because I, now I'm at, I don't know how many houses I've built here in total. But um, the first one was a real challenge. And mm-hmm. it was not easy. And, um, but I never doubted that it was going to work out. Sure. But there were some very, very dark moments, you know. Um, and I think that the... Um, the advice I would give to people is, first of all, don't doubt, mm. but be realistic. Mm. Have confidence. And uh, to um, African people, I would say, well, we have an incredible advantage. 
is that we have mastered uh, the codes of the Western world because we have gone to very good schools. Uh, well, I, I was always the only black person everywhere mm. in, uh, in my childhood, but it never it was never a problem for me. I, I don't I don't I did not suffer from blatant racism mm. uh, because um, this very simple fact you're saying I should be um, having a political career. But you know I was changing school a lot because I, I if I didn't like the school I would tell my parents I would change school next year. So for the last uh, four years in Paris, I changed school every year. Wow. And um, my mother had this bet with me because, you know, they elect the head of the class on the first week. And the head of the class is kind of, you know, setting some rules and being the intermediary with the professors and all of that. And my mother would always say, oh, you're going to change school again? Huh, how much I bet you're going to be the head of the class? <laughs> and I would tell her, well, I mean... You need to have been there for a long time and know everybody. I don't know anybody in this school. And I was always elected the head of the class. After wow. Everywhere. So no one was trying to mess with me, <laughs> even, even though I was the only black girl. Yeah. But more than that, I was preventing any bullying in my class. Mm. Because, you know, in France, you have uh, school, uh, education is free. So you, you don't need to go to a private school to be in a good school. Mm. And very often you have several social um, classes in the same class. You know, you could have kids whose parents are, you know, doormen in a very posh building and then all the kids from that building being in the same class. Wow. And in my, in my classes, there was never any bullying. It would just be, I mean, I would have a fist control. And I think this gave me confidence about the fact that things are possible mm. and that you should never be in a position of thinking, oh, people are racist. No. Yeah, don't no. even, just just go with, with the, I guess what you're saying is that just believe that it's possible and you'll deal with things as they happen. But don't exactly. let it don't let it like stop what it is that you want to do and be, you know, discount it before you even try. Exactly. And there's also one thing, one um, anecdote which uh, learned me, uh, taught me a lot. Mm. Um, the last year in school, uh, and before, you know, so I'm 16, all the girls are 18 or 19. I'm the youngest, I'm quite a good student. And one day, a girl asked me in front of everybody, it was like not during the class, you know, it's the recess, asked me, oh, Marianne, I have to ask you a question because, you know, you're the only black person I know. Um, and obviously you're not like the others, you know, so already my ears are what is burning. She mm. And she says, how do you, listen to this, how do you explain that black and white people can have children? Because, you know, for me, it is just like if a horse and a dog were trying to mm. make, to, to uh, mate. Mm. And and, and then she, she said, oh, of course, I don't say who would be the horse, who would be the dog. Huh? So I'm just listening to this. And all the girls around are white girls. And I said, I think the best answer will be coming from the other girl. I don't need to answer to mm. that question. And then the other girl realized, all of them, everybody, the enormity of the question. Mm. And then I said, well, if ever again I'm asked 
in public or in a little group some stupid question like this, the best thing is to get the other people to answer to the question. Mm, sure. And sure. Uh, this was um, this taught me a lot, and I think that you know the to come back to the advice: never doubt, mm. never doubt, but be reasonable. Mm. You know. Don't do, I, I didn't think I was going to become a neurosurgeon. I'm too bad at science. Mm. I was doing something which I knew was in the realm of my own possibilities. Mm. That's so good. Now, I wanted to touch back onto your, um, your property, Jan. Please help me pronounce it. Jnan Tamsna. I heard, a, like, can you talk to us about the relationship that you try to build with the guests um, who come and visit the property? Because I, I think I, I heard about there was an elderly lady who had visited and you somehow turned her room into a clinic. Yes. You know, so this was in Dar Tamsna okay. a long time ago. Okay. I had a group of wonderful Americans to visit, mm. all university professors. Mm. And uh, one day they went to um, the main square and she slipped on something and she broke her, uh, her hip. Mm. And, you know, she was some uh, lady in her early 80s. What I love about Americ- Americans, I mean, some of them, is that <laughs> only death will stop them. Yeah. The ones who, who are active, you know, they can come with crutches or they just do it. So she was um, brought to a clinic and her husband, of course, uh, canceled his return and stayed with her like two or three weeks. Mm. And so um, I went to see the head of the clinic because, of course, you know, clinics are a bit depressing places. Mm. And I asked if I could redecorate her room mm. and bring her food every day. And mm. they said, fine, fine, make sure that everything is super clean and, you know, hygienic. So um, I brought rug that we had carefully cleaned. I brought a little bit of antiques. I had put a painting on a table. Uh, we were bringing her food every day. And I really t- and there were flowers. They allowed us to bring flowers. And, um, and I really made her room something nice. you know, that she could cope with. I mean, poor woman, she didn't speak French. She didn't speak Arabic. Arabic and she had a broken hip. And this was time before emails. And she had a very, very good, uh, they took excellent care of her. Mm-hmm. And we had, organi- we had brought a bed for her husband so he could also sleep in the same room. And um, she went back, to, I think she was from Minnesota, she went back and her um, local doctor sent me a letter for his um, colleagues here saying that she would not have been uh, taken better care of if she had stayed in the U.S., not only the medical care, but also the human care that we provided. Oh, that's so well, I think that, um, you know, we are, we are very lucky because we have, in general, absolutely wonderful guests mm. who um, like the experience of being in a small hotel where the owners are so involved. You know, my, my husband is crazy about plants and he designs. Yeah, he's a botanist. Yeah, I heard. Yeah. yeah. And an anthropologist. Yeah. And he... Um, he designed a fantastic garden, and his garden has the front cover of the book on the gardens of Marrakesh. And uh, it's very interesting for people because I think they realize that there's a content in what we do. Mm-hmm. We didn't build a place to sell room nights. Mm-hmm. No, we and we were not planned. I mean, we didn't go to hotel schools. We didn't want to become hotelier. It's just like the we're accidental hoteliers, I would say, mm-hmm. because I we built this place and we needed to to live. 
to have an income, so we turned it into a hotel. And the garden is very much part of it because not only we produced our own organic food, but um, in the um, Islamic world, gardens have always always been a very important part of the architecture. Mm. So um, yes, the gardens are amazing here, and then I guess the guests feel, you know. What I would say that most of the time before they come, they have organized a big program with a reception, and then they arrive here and they say, "Cancel everything. We don't want to leave." <laughs> and, and they just sit. So you and see, now they, you're really making me feel so bad about sitting here while you're in paradise. <laughs> no, it's not that. It is just that uh, you know, someone in uh, some somewhere, people's dream are to have a connection with a place that a regular hotel cannot give because everything, you know, if you have a hotel of 40, 50 or 100 rooms, all the bedrooms are the same. Mm. Here you don't have one room which is the same. Mm. You know, so people often, I tell them, oh, I thought you were going to visit or to do this. They said, why would we move? (laughs) When we are in a regular hotel, we always feel like going out and moving. Mm. But we're staying here just like if we had our own home in Morocco. Mm. And we're just happy reading under the shade of the trees or walking or meeting other guests. And it's, wow. um, it's quite, uh, I mean, every time I'm surprised by that. And I think it's really wonderful how much people develop a bond with a place. Mm-hmm. And since many of them come back, they also see, you know, the things growing, a garden grow, uh, uh, maybe your room has changed, uh, has a new piece of furniture or something. They like l- being part of the evolution of the place. You mm. know? Sure. And now, um, just in terms of the guests that you've had, I, I'm, I don't know if you'd be able to share, who's been the most high-profile guest that's um, at, at, at your property? Well, um, I would just mention one, because yes. very kindly he was... Um, there was a video, a friend of his made a video and posted it mm. at some point. So he, he was fine with that. So it's uh, the actor Hugh Jackman. Oh, wow. He has come many times here. Wow. And he is the nicest, nicest guest. Mm. And he arrives and he goes with his son to play football with the kids in the village. And he buys football for everybody and crayons and books and um him and his family, they're the, the dearest, dearest guests. I, I, I can't imagine anybody not being nice in the kind of environment that you're describing. <laughs> I think it just well, it leans itself to bringing out the best in, in you know, I, I mean, I think it's testament to the fact that it leans itself to bringing, you know, beautiful surroundings, make you want to feel and do better you know, as a person. I would, I would say that it is the case for 95% of the guests. But, you know, you still have 5% who are people angry with themselves mm. and then they need a scapegoat when they travel. So mm. um, the scapegoat, they decide, could be us, but yeah. they don't stay here in general because I tell them, oh, you know, there's this place where they're going to be so, <laughs> so much, you know, so happy there, yeah. so happy there. So we usually have very, very nice guests, I would yeah. say. Very, and, very nice. And how far in advance are, are, is your um, your your boutique hotel booked? Well, it really depends, you see, because, mm. you know, this weekend and um, we have a Mexican party mm. and this was decided 10 days ago and they all flew from Mexico. Sure. Uh, and uh, it was decided 10 days ago uh, 
and um, some and now we also have bookings for weddings and for birthday parties in 2019 so it really depends you know people should um, not think oh I want to go there in a month too late it's going to be full no always it try depends. Yeah. yes it really depends and now before but what I would love yes sorry, no, continue, continue. what I would love is to have more and more um, African guests yeah yeah. no I'm, you know what I'm going to be a guest at your boutique and I'm going to be like look I know her. She is like my girl. <laughs> be like, and I won't be the, the you know the five percent of guests that you're going to be like, you know, Lee. If you go to the other side, there's a beautiful hotel. <laughs> I'll probably yeah. be there trying to find out everything about the hotel and the property. I think it's amazing. I think that you really offer a different experience. You know, I'm um, to just the art of of a hotel, and it's and it's perhaps that the fact that it is art. You know, and I think that all that you're doing, and even the ideas that you have about, you know being able to exhibit and to showcase um, African um, art is just amazing. So congratulations on all that. Um, oh, and, thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much for your time. I'm literally, literally about to be like, okay, I have to find time of when it is I'm going to visit Morocco. Definitely. Well, come, come whenever you want. And I hope that, you know, in October when we launch our new um, um, space designed to Africans, um, dedicated to African designers. I hope that you can come to the launch party. Yeah, I think what date is that? I'm literally looking at Tiki, so I'm like, Tiki, what date is that? I think it's going to be the very first days of October. Okay, this is something we're going to work towards, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Now, now before I let you go, I just want to ask you a few questions so we can use them as, as kind of liners, if that's okay. You, yeah, you answer these kind of in short so because we, we ask it to a lot of the yeah. different guests. So the one mm-hmm. thing is, um, what does Africa Day mean to you? Africa Day? Yes. It's on the 25th of May. <laughs> 25th of May? 25th of May is Africa Day. Well, it's my daughter's birthday. Oh, oh, <laughs> That's what it means to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so lovely. One of, one of them, one, probably the, one of the happiest day in my life. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Um, and now, what do you think is the one misconception that people have about your country? And in this case, I mean Morocco. Well, I think you cannot. it cannot be a general thing because each uh, the French think something of Morocco, the English think something else, mm. you know. So I, it's, I, I cannot really answer to this question about people in general. I'm know? saying the biggest misconception people may... So say, for example... You know, people may think that, um, you know, like Nigerians are a certain way, but then the truth is that they really are hardworking people. So that sort of thing. That's what I mean by misconception. Well, I think that the most important thing that people forget is that it is a, uh, a country which has a culture of thousands and thousands of years. Mm. It's a very old country. Mm. And people think, oh, it is you think a touristic place. Mm. No. No, 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 no. That I think that's the biggest misconception. I think that makes a lot of sense. And finally, when you think the phrase um, "African state of mind," what do you think? How would you hmm. define it? Yeah. Well, as I told you before, I think we have an incredible advantage hmm. because, in a way, we can have two cultures. Hmm. You know, the Western culture plus the, our own fabulous, fabulous richness cultural heritage and diversity I love that and then the last one can you build me a home in Morocco <laughs> <That's not laughs> that come, wasn't one of the questions it. I had to try <laughs> come 
Come, come. We'll look for land and I'll design it for you. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Thank you for taking time out. And yeah, Thank I'm just, you, yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Africa State of Mind. I hope that you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as we enjoy putting it together for you. And once again, a big shout out to all of the amazing people um, from around the amazing continent of Africa, uh, you know, who are really doing their part with regards to changing the narrative. Don't forget that you can interact with us um, on our Twitter handle at Africa State Mind. You can also join the Africa State of Mind group on Facebook. And please remember to rate us um, on iTunes. Let us know how it is that you think that we're doing. And if you have any ideas for any guests or people from your particular country uh, within the continent of Africa that are really changing the narrative, please be sure to share it with us. That's all we have for time for today. My name is Lika Sumba, Africa State of Mind. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Africa State of Mind with Lika Sumba. Get it on iTunes now.